Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this facility, the opportunity for our church to meet and to be able to to study together, Father, has been such a blessing. And we can almost take your blessings for granted because when they're appointed to us, they come so easily. Uh, They are always perfectly timed. And Father, we are such a we're such blessed people to to have the care of a father who knows how to give good gifts. So we thank you for that. And chief among your good gifts, Father, to us has been your word and the opportunity for us to know the things that you've revealed to us in that, things that could never have been known otherwise. And Lord, in your study, uh, in your book of Ezekiel, as we've studied over the last months, uh, we've learned so much. We're nearing the end, Father, but we still have more to do. And I pray, Father, that as we finish it in the weeks to come and as we reflect back on it, it will be something that we'll turn our hearts to over and over again, and it will quicken our spirit, thinking about the kingdom, thinking about where we're going, even as we also remember the, the difficult times that came to Israel in centuries past because of sin. And that's the twofold message of, of this work, Father, that, that sin in our lives puts us at odds with you and fellowship is at risk. Uh, but then, Father, because our relationship isn't based on our performance, There is always a glorious future awaiting us. And so I ask, Father, that that would motivate us so that we would seek not only for the kingdom in its day to come, but also for fellowship in the meantime through obedience. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in chapter 45, we're looking at the priestly activities of the kingdom temple. That's what we're on tonight. And we're picking up in chapter 45, verse 9, because that's where we left off. Last week we got just briefly into this chapter. And in verse 9, now looking at the sacrificial system, and particularly now the offerings and the feast days that will take place in the kingdom, Ezekiel writes, Thus says the Lord God, Enough, you princes of Israel, put away violence and destruction and practice justice and righteousness. Stop your expropriations from my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be the same quantity, so that the bath will contain a tenth of a homer and an ephah a tenth of a homer. Their standards shall be according to the homer. The shekel shall be 20 gerars and 20 shekels. 25 shekels and 15 shekels shall be your mana. This is the offering that you shall offer, a sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat, a sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley. And this prescribed portion of oil, namely the bath of oil, a tenth of a bath from each core, which is ten baths or a homer, for ten baths are a homer. And one sheep from each flock of two hundred from the watering places of Israel for a grain offering, for a burnt offering, and for peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give to this offering for the prince of Israel. It shall be the prince's part to provide the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the drink offerings at the feasts, on the new moons and on the Sabbaths, at all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offering, the grain offering, and burnt offerings, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. The Lord begins with an exhortation. Let's start there at the top of what I read. He begins with this exhortation, speaking to the leaders of Israel, and he says, It's about time you treated my people justly, which they will now do in the kingdom, of course. rather than rob from the people, which had been the way that Israel's leaders had exploited them in years past, particularly in Ezekiel's day and in prior centuries. Now the Lord says, no, you're going to deal fairly with my people, finally. 
This has always been the Lord's expectation for His shepherds. His, his expectation has always been that those that are appointed over the people of God would hold up the highest standards of ethical behavior and concern, selflessness, putting the people's needs over their own. Uh, in theory, we all agree and expect this. In practice, it's a shame, but we don't always see it. In fact, I think in the days we live, we're increasingly not seeing it. And more likely, we see men who portray themselves as one thing and are actually another. In fact, Ezekiel is sitting in exile right now, giving these prophecies to his countrymen because of the damage that had been done by the men who had preceded him in either prophetic ministry or in leadership over the people. And because of those leaders doing bad things and leading the people astray, it brought them into the state of corruption that eventually resulted in their exile. You may remember back in chapter 22 of Ezekiel, God spoke this to the leaders back in that time, looking at the people of Ezekiel's day, and he said this, In chapter 22, verse 23, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, that is to the land of Israel, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives, they have taken treasure and precious things, and they have made many widows in the midst of her. That's the prophets. Then he says, Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things, and they've made no distinction between holy and profane, and they've not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they hide their eyes from Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. That's the priests. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying the lives in order to get a dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing visions that are false and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found none. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads." declares the Lord. So in his day, you had prophets, priests, and princes, or we could say kings, all devouring, gullible, and unsuspecting people in the nation of Israel. Taking things from them. You notice how often the theme was they took, they used their power to gain. Uh, It was about selfish gain, using their influence. And they lied to Israel. They led them into things that eventually resulted in their death and Babylon's destruction of them. Priests, it says, didn't teach them right from wrong in terms of what was holy and what was profane. They let both things exist side by side. And they ignored the proper conduct of the law in observing the feasts and Sabbaths. Finally, you have the kings, it says, they're like wolves tearing people apart in the way that they engaged in foolish, bloody wars contrary to God's direction. And they fought against Babylon, chief among them, which is what he said not to do, that Babylon was his instrument. They were supposed to submit to Babylon. And they fought against it. So you have a corruption there. And, and God says that corruption left a gap. You could say like a vacuum. And he looked around all the people of Israel. He says, there's somebody here that can step into that gap. And the, the, the striking response is no. There was nobody. There was no one left. Not until Messiah came. I'd love to have the time to stand on a soapbox about how relevant this is to the day we live. It's not just, and I won't spend more than 30 seconds on it, but it it is a shame that we have. Men have always been corrupted, right? Sin has always been around. There's nothing new about this. It's just that in the day we live today, it, it appears as though the desire for wealth has reached epic 
proportions, which has only driven more and more people in ministry to make that a goal in and of itself, such that what they actually preach moves people's hearts in that direction, right? And then you have just sheer incompetence. There's no other word for it. Biblical illiteracy. Incompetence. I I would argue that the number one criteria to be in this job is that you know the Bible. And yet it's often now considered a specialty. Right? It's a specialty. There are pastors, many, who work in this role and are not particularly good at Bible teaching. They'll tell you that. I'm not a good Bible teacher. That's not my gift. Then don't be a pastor. Number one requirement of being a pastor, able to teach. Able to teach. In fact, the term in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's only one time in the New Testament when the word pastor is used in the Greek. And it's in Ephesians, and it's properly translated from the Greek, pastor teacher. Pastor teacher. So it's a shepherd. What do shepherds do? Feed the flock. So it's a, we're at the point where you don't necessarily see people who are tearing people to pieces in the visual image of a wolf or a lion, but you certainly see people who are in this role letting people starve to death. And it's because they've made teaching the Bible a specialty of some area of ministry rather than the heart of ministry. And because of that, people are being led astray or they're suffering in other ways. This was the situation that God said existed in the day of Ezekiel. It's what led them into Babylon because as the people were not shepherded properly, they fell into sin. And as the leaders went, the nation went. And as they ended up there, they went into exile. Verse 10, though, the Lord says that in the day of the kingdom, this is over. All of those who lead, the princes, if you will, the government officials, he uses the example here of just balances. Now, in ancient times, monetary value was established on the basis of weight. A, a, you know, they didn't have paper money because you didn't have the means to ensure that that wasn't uh, a corrupt or counterfeit method. So they used things that could, could not be easily counterfeited. Precious metal that could be weighed. And you would weigh a good, a dry good, let's say, against the weight of a known metal. And that's how you would establish its value, on a scale, on a balance. But if you were a corrupt merchant and you wanted to steal from your customers, you would literally tip the scales in your favor. You would change the mechanism in such a way that it would show that uh, it required more payment to get the good than the good was actually worth. And if you were a king or a prince, you could do the same thing for the sake of collecting more taxes than you were supposed to collect. And what the Lord has said already is this became common practice among the corrupt leaders of Israel. But he says it's not going to happen in the kingdom. Verses 11 and 12, he says, Israel, in Israel in that day, an ephah and a bath would be a standard, dependable, consistent measure. He's saying that we're not going to see your bath. A bath is a measure of liquid volume. An ephah is a measure of dry volume. So you'd measure oil and baths, and you'd measure barley, for example, and ephahs. And he says they're all going to be the same weight. They're going to have an equal standard, not one for a corrupt person versus another for somebody else. Likewise, a shekel, which is another unit of weight, would also be consistent. The point is, business dealings will be fair and trustworthy, uh, which is another welcome change from not only their day, but our day. Another way to say it is, you'll never need to count your change in the kingdom. It'll always be correct. But by the same token, this little detail, not only is it teaching about the general uprightness of the kingdom, but it also confirms there will be an economy. There will be an economy in the kingdom. Money will change hands. Goods will be sold and bought. Wealth will be transferred. And if wealth can be transferred, it can be stored. And if wealth can be stored, some will have more than others. It is real life. 
Then in verses 13 through 17, the Lord specifies how the people are to make offerings to the prince, their payments, if you will, on a regular basis, so that the prince can then make offerings for the nation. So in effect, this is a tax. This is the tax on which people will then contribute to the needs of the sacrificial system in the temple. This is just what was going on in Israel under the Mosaic Law. Uh, One of the misconceptions, of course, that comes into the church today is the idea of tithing, that we have to tithe and that it's 10% and that we have to because that's what God has asked. None of that's true. The tithes of the Old Testament were not 10%. Number two, they were never given to the Christian. Number three, there is no specific amount that the Christian has to give to anyone at any time, according to Scripture. Why is it not 10% if the word means 10? Because there was more than one tithe. On an average year in in Israel, a Jew would have to give somewhere between 20 and 30% of their income to collectively across all of the tithes that are required in the course of a calendar year. So if you want to do what was done in the Old Testament, you better be ready because it's a lot more than 10%. Okay? So the Bible says you give generously as the Lord leads, period. Meanwhile, by the way, the Bible doesn't say give it to a church either. It says give to the saints. So that can be however the Lord leads you to do that. Having said that, we'd really appreciate it. No, never mind. That was a joke. Moving on. By the way, this is actually on that little joke I made. This is actually a relevant point. Under the Old Testament Mosaic Law, there was a specific destination for your giving, and it was the temple. at The Levites or the temple in general. Under the New Testament methodology, if you will, there is no specific destination. It's to the needs of the saints. In the kingdom, because we're back to a physical location for the glory of God, a building, a temple, etc., we revert back to that becomes the place for your giving. Right? And here you see it. Now the allotment here that, that, that's spelled out is pretty significant. When you take one-sixth of all grain, one percent of all oil, one out of every 200 animals, you put all that, and that's per person. Now you add that against all the people. There's a tremendous amount of wealth coming into the temple. And all of it, David turns around and it becomes part of the sacrificial system. And it's also what feeds the priests in the temple who serve there. All right. So as the saying goes, there's, there's nothing certain except death and taxes. Well, you learn which of those two is the most powerful force in the universe. Because in the kingdom, there will no longer be any death for us, but there will still be taxes. All right, next we have the regulations for feasts in the kingdom. Chapter 45, verse 18. Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood from the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the house, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the posts of the gate of the inner court. Thus you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who goes astray or is naive, so you shall make atonement for the house. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. During the seven days of the feast, he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven bulls and seven rams without blemish on every day of the seven days, and a male goat daily for a sin offering. He shall provide as a grain offering an ephah with a bull, an ephah with a ram, and a hin of oil with an ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall provide, like this, seven days for the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. Let me explain what he's saying here. First of all, the first day of the first month would be like our New Year day, right? Uh, January 1st, as we would call it, but under Israel's uh, calendar, it's the different month, Nisan, and it's the first of Nisan, which happens in the springtime for them. 
But on the very first day of every year, there's going to be a sacrifice at the temple. It's going to involve a young bull, and it's going to be used to cleanse the temple. Now, you might ask, well, why does the millennial temple of the kingdom need cleansing? Well, because sinners are going there. Or at least sin is being atoned for there in a limited sense, as was done under the old law, because you still have sin in the kingdom. And so just as the temple of the old law had to be cleansed regularly, so will the new one. Blood is placed on the doorposts, and it's put on the posts of the four corners of the altar. And then that ceremony is repeated again on the seventh day of the first month. So you have the blood of the bull applied to the doorways of the temple, and that's similar to the way the lamb's blood of Passover was applied to the doorway and cleansed the temple of that time. And then, as I said, it's repeated on the seventh day. I think marking the first and the seventh days in the first month of the year, actually the first week of the year, it suggests Jesus in that he is the beginning of creation and he is our Sabbath. So the first day of the year, the first day of the first week, if you will, is the beginning of creation. And the seventh day of the first week is the Sabbath day, according to the Genesis story. And Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is the beginning of creation, according to Revelation. That could be the symbology there. But then it says later in the month of Nisan, on the 14th, the first feast of the year will be celebrated, and that is Passover. It begins on the same day as the Passover does now in the Mosaic Law. But unlike the current Passover, this one's going to be a seven-day feast. The current Passover feast is one day. Under Mosaic Law, you have the Passover coming on one day, followed by a seven-day feast that comes after it. And that seven-day feast that follows it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But in the new world that we're going to go in, you have only the Passover. You don't have the other one. But the Passover lasts seven days. And other differences exist as well. You have the prince officiating over the ritual, but in the case of the Passover that's done now, uh, it's officiated by each family. Remember, a family comes together, they, they celebrate Passover as a family. They would sacrifice their own lamb. In the Passover we do today, or used to do, I guess, when they had a temple, they would sacrifice a lamb. Now it's a bull. And because it's a seven-day feast, you have that going on each day for seven days instead of just on one day. There's also differences in the meal offerings, but I'm not going to get into that. Interestingly, then, he says, repeat that feast again in the seventh month. Well, you do Passover on the first month of the year this year, like you do in every year. I mean, it's under Mosaic law, Passover is always on the first month of the year on Nisan. But in the seventh month of the calendar now, you don't do Passover again. What do you do? You do the Feast of Tabernacles, the last feast. The first one and the last one are seven months apart. So what's going to happen in the kingdom is you're going to have the Passover feast, and then seven months later you're going to do the Tabernacles feast in the same way as you do the Passover. Basically the same sacrifices are required for both. But you have a Tabernacle feast in the last month, you have a Passover feast in the first. It looks like those are the only two you celebrate in the kingdom. That the other five that take place between them now aren't in the kingdom. We just have the first one and the last one. In the kingdom. So what do we make of all these differences between what we've studied, what's there today in the Mosaic Law, and what's coming in the kingdom law? Well, let's, I got, this is where the, the imagery starts to kick in. Let's remember what feasts in Israel are for in the first place. Uh, every feast in Israel serves two purposes. They all serve the purpose as a historic memorial, And they also serve a purpose as a prophetic picture. So let's start, for example, with Passover. Passover historically pictures 
the Lord passing over the firstborn of Israel when he took all the firstborn from Egypt on the night before Israel was released from their slavery, remember? So that's the historical meaning of Passover. And today, a Jew that would celebrate Passover today, generally speaking, that's all they see it as. They don't have any other view of it. But it has a prophetic view, obviously. And prophetically, it's a picture of Christ on the cross, which is what we're all about to celebrate in a few days, right? So that's its prophetic meaning. So you can say that for every feast, there is a memorial and there's a picture. A memorial of something that established it from a past event, and then a picture of Jesus in it in some fashion. And it would be a great study at some point to go do all the feasts of Israel and show you how they all relate to Jesus and all the detail, but that's not our purpose here tonight. Let me just give you a couple other examples. I won't use slides for these, but I'm just going to state them. The, the feast that immediately follows Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what does it memorialize? Well, it memorializes the journey in haste that Israel initiated immediately after the Passover. They had to move quickly to leave uh, Egypt, and for seven days they traveled from Egypt to where they eventually stopped at the Red Sea. Night and day, walking, without stop, without eating, without sleeping, for seven days, the Bible says. And the Lord guided them at night and in daytime with fire and cloud, and he supernaturally kept them moving. And because they had to move so quickly, they didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise. So they, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's seven days because it memorializes the time that they took to travel from Goshen or from, from Egypt into where they eventually landed by the Red Sea. Uh, what about the, the a third one, first fruits? The next one in line, the first the feast of first fruits. It's always on the first Sunday after Passover. Doesn't matter if that's the next day or seven days later. It's the next Sunday after Passover. So it happens somewhere in the middle of the feast of unleavened bread. Well, what does it commemorate? Well, it's it's a feast of the spring harvest. So it commemorates the bounty of the provision of the Lord in the spring feast, in the spring harvest, rather. All right? But if you look at these forward, we know that Jesus is the Passover lamb of Passover, right? So how is he the unleavened bread? Well, Jesus leads us away from sin and to the Father, as just as Israel was led to the Father at the mountain, if you will. They were led out of the world and toward the Father. That's our exodus. Your spiritual exodus is coming to Jesus, leaving the world, coming to the Father, being reconciled to God. And you do that because he's died on a cross for you. So first comes Passover, then comes the movement of us away from sin, away from the leaven of our world and our unsaved nature into a sanctified walk with Christ. And he is our bread of life who removes our sin, our unleavened state. So it's a picture of sanctification. Okay? And what about the feast of first fruits? The Sunday after Passover. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, which was Sunday after Passover. That is, he was our bountiful provision. He rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. Okay? Interestingly, by the way, all of these are, their prophetic picture is being fulfilled on the very day of the actual feast. So we could go a little further. Let's just look at all the feasts for a second. This is the Jewish calendar, interposed over the regular calendar. And so your spring feasts all take place in Nisan. The fall feasts are all in Tishri, which is exactly half a year later. And in between them is Pentecost, which happens 49 days after first fruits. And again, we could go through all of the details of what they represent.
That's the Jewish calendar as it exists under the Mosaic law. But there are only two of those that take place in the kingdom. The very first one and the very last one. And the reason is because they are the only two that still have prophetic significance in the kingdom. The Passover continues to picture Christ's atoning death. And that still has relevance because you still have sinners who need to know they need an atoning death for their own sake, right? And the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of God dwelling with his people in the kingdom. It is actually the feast that pictures the kingdom. And as such, it's obviously still relevant in the kingdom. But between those two, those other five that go on between them, the resurrection of the the next one in line would be the unleavened bread that represents the sanctification of our walk toward glory. Then you have the resurrection of Jesus. Then you have Pentecost, which is the giving of the law. Then you have the trumpets, which is the rapture of the church. Then you have the atonement, that is the time of tribulation for Israel. And then you have, finally, the one that represents the kingdom. Well, those other five I just listed between the Passover and and tabernacles have no meaning in the kingdom. They're all past events. They have no parallel in the kingdom. Therefore, it only makes sense that the kingdom would only remember the two that still have precedent or still have application. All right, so then we go on now to chapter 46. And this one looks at Sabbath observances and moon, the new moon festivals at the outset. There's other things later. Let's start with those two topics. Verse 1, Thus says the Lord God, The gate of the inner court facing east shall be shut the six working days, but it shall be open on the Sabbath day and open on the day of the new moon. The prince shall enter by way of the porch of the gate from outside and stand by the post of the gate. Then the priest shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate, then go out, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. The people of the land shall also worship at the doorway of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbath and on the new moons. The burnt offering which the priest shall offer to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be an ephah with the ram and the grain offering with the lambs as much as he is able to give and a hint of oil with an ephah. On the day of the new moon, he shall offer a young bull without blemish, also six lambs and a ram which shall be without blemish. And he shall provide a grain offering, an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram and the and with the lambs as much as he is able, and a hint of oil with an ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the porch of the gate and go out by the same way. All right, well, the Sabbath observance. First of all, we continue to see a Sabbath observance in uh, the kingdom as we did under the Mosaic Law. Here again, during the church period, we have the exception. So there is no Sabbath day for the believer in the church. There is under Mosaic Law. There will be under the kingdom law. All right? But the details of how Sabbath is done in the kingdom are uh, a little unique. All right? Start with that image again. Remember, you're looking here now at the uh, east gate leading into the inner court. So this is the gate within. Not the gate on the outside, but the gate that leads you directly into where the temple is located in the inner court. That east gate is closed six days of the week. Now remember, the outer court's east gate, it's always closed. Once the Shekinah glory of God passed through, it was shut for good. This one now is closed as well, six days of the week. And when that door is closed, there's no way for anyone who might be visiting the temple that day to see into where the temple itself actually is. They could see in from the other doors, but remember the structure, we'll see a picture of this in a minute. When you look in from the north or south gates, you're looking at those side structures of the priestly quarters. You couldn't see the temple straight through from those doors. This is the only door that you had a straight shot view into the temple front door. And it's closed six days of the week. 
All right? On the seventh day, the doors opened. So visitors to the temple on that day are able to stand in front of the gate and potentially look through and see the Shekinah glory through the open door of the temple. Remember, there's nothing in the holy of place. There's nothing in the holy of holies. There's no furniture in there like there is in the current wet day. There's no veil like there is in the current day, or was. And so with the east gate open, there's nothing between you and the holy of holies in the very back of the temple. You could see, all, it's a distance away, but you could see in and see the glory of God. All right. Presumably, worshipers then who come in on the Sabbath can catch a glimpse of that. Remember, only the believers have access to the temple, so unbelievers never see this. On the Sabbath, there are these special sacrifices. They are different than the Mosaic Law. And just as a quick little comparison, you have in the Mosaic Law two lambs and a ram on the Sabbath. That's a total of three. In the Kingdom Law, you have six lambs and a ram on the Sabbath, total of seven. The meaning of that change is not immediately clear. Uh, then you have the new moon festivals also changing in the offerings that are made. Uh, though, again, the meaning of that is not particularly clear, uh, why the difference in numbers or, or amounts. But the significance of the glory of God only being visible on the Sabbath, the meaning of that would certainly be clear, or at least the meaning of Sabbath is clear to us, because we know, in fact, if you were here this last weekend, you heard me teach on this a little, but that Hebrews tells us that the Sabbath is a picture of resting in the work of God, resting from our own works, resting in the work of Christ, right? So it makes sense that the inner east door would open on the Sabbath such that it, it, it pictures your access to God, to Christ, on Sabbath. That is, in resting in Him, you have access to Him. Also notice that there's only one person officiating in this ceremony. All this sacrifice that's taking place, David is a busy guy because he's the only one who ever does this, this job. Now you have a sense of why God wanted a prince in his, in his command, because so much of what happens in the temple, there's no high priest anymore, so so much of what's going on in the temple is done through David's hands now. Now here's an interesting detail. You have David standing, it says, uh, outside this structure. He's back actually here. Standing here, it says, to give the sacrifices. That door is only open one day a week. And it opens when David comes to do the sacrifices. He never goes in there, it says, or it never indicates he goes in. And we know that the priests alone are the ones who officiate in this area, which is also consistent with what happened under Mosaic law. Furthermore, you remember these are the priestly quarters on either side. So the priests have this inner sanctum where they can come in and out and do the work of being, of being a priest. They have to leave their clothes behind and then go out the doors when they're done. David not being a priest, he won't go in there, it appears. But he simply uses the implements that are available here for the sacrifice, for the preparing of the, of the animal, taking the animal's life, etc., happens out there. One day a week it's open. One day a week he can see in. That would tell us that unless you are David, or unless you are a priest, you're not going to see the glory of God very much, if at all. You might catch a glimpse of it if you're there in that place on a Sabbath. Otherwise, he's in a temple behind a door, behind a wall, behind another door, behind another wall, and that's it. The world does not see him, except in that very limited way. We've talked about that before, but you're, you're beginning to see now how structured it is, right? By the way, on the question of whether or not you and I could ever be a priest, there is a difference of opinion on that. There's only one passage in all the Bible that kind of suggests that maybe that, that Gentiles would be priests. Isaiah says, in Isaiah 66, 18... The Lord says, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory. 
I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlines that have never heard my fame nor seen my glory. They will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring... Now this is what, what this is saying right here is, he says, Then they, the Gentile nations, shall bring all your brethren, the Jewish people, from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So he says that when this day is ready to come, the day of the kingdom, the Gentile nations will bring the Jewish people back to their homeland in, in, as a way of honoring them, bring them back and put them in their land, which is where they deserve to be. And then in verse 21, he adds this, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites. But now the question is, who is them? Is the them the Gentiles bringing the Jews, or is the them the Jews who the Gentiles brought? Depending on your reading of that passage, the Lord is either promising that he'll make some Gentiles into priests, or else he's simply referring to the Jews having some men, some among them be priests. I would argue that it's talking about Jews becoming priests, and here's why. Because he says, I will take some of them for priests and for Levites. To call someone who is non-Jewish a Levite makes no sense. And that's the only passage you have. So I'm not going to hang my hat on that one statement to suggest that Gentiles will be priests in the kingdom. It's more likely, uh, I, I mentioned this earlier in earlier lessons about the prospect of this, but I've always said, if you go back and listen, I've always couched it as there could be an opportunity, there might be, and it's because you can't be certain about this. So if you're not a priest and you're not David, your opportunities, even as a believer, even as a glorified believer, are minimal to see the glory of God in that time. Now you'll have seen Jesus when you face him earlier than that, so you'll you'll know what he's like. All right, now let's consider how the people of the kingdom engage in worship. Verse 9. But when the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feasts, he who enters by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And he who enters by way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. No one shall return by the way of the gate by which he entered, but shall go straight out. When they go in, the prince shall go in among them. When they go out, he shall go out. At the festivals and the appointed feasts, the grain offering shall be an ephah with a bull and an ephah with a ram and with the lambs as much as one is able to give, and a hin of oil with an ephah. When the prince provides a freewill offering, a burnt offering or peace offering, as a freewill offering to the Lord, the gate facing east shall be open for him, and he shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and the gate shall be shut after he goes out. And you shall provide a lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily, morning by morning, you shall provide it. And you shall also provide a grain offering with it morning by morning, a sixth of an ephah and a third of hin of oil to moisten the fine flour, a grain offering to the Lord continually by a perpetual ordinance. Thus you shall provide the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil morning by morning for a continual burnt offering. This is the daily sacrifice. Uh, Did you know that in the temple, as it operated under Moses, every morning there was a sacrifice just as a part of the regular routine of morning activity by the by the priest. They started the day with a with an animal being sacrificed. That was how they began their work day. And that's going to continue here. Uh, before we get to that, look at the worship that was said about the people. He says, the worship here will take place on the two feast days. So worship is not a weekly event. It's associated with the feasts. So when the feast days roll around, which is every six months, there's a worship day or a worship period because these are seven-day periods. 
And the prince will lead the people in worship. And the offerings in verse 11 are to be the same as what you saw earlier on a Sabbath or a new moon. It's the same pattern. All right? But on those days, and this is a little interesting moment, he says here, the worshipers have to enter and exit from different doors. And, you know, if you look at it just, I don't know, as, as we often look at things, you'd say, oh, I guess it's just crowd control. He just wants them to have an orderly process. You know, they go in one day, don't, don't fight traffic and go back out the way you came in. Now, remember, there's only three openings in the outer wall, and the east gate has been permanently closed. So that leaves you only the north and the south. So if you come in the north, you leave the south. If you come in the south, you leave the north. That's what he just said. Now, why does he have that as a requirement? Well, picture does a lot here to explain it. When you look at the picture, you notice that if you follow these instructions, you have to pass in front of the east gate of the inner court in order to reach the exit on the opposite side of the court. Regardless of which way you come in, you're going to be forced to walk in front of the east gate to the inner court. And as you pass the east gate on the inner court... You're going to be able to look into the inner court, and if it's a day in which the doors are open for the sacrifices, which is what you just read, then you're going to catch that glimpse of the glory of God as you pass by. So the point of the rule is to remind the worshipers who they're worshiping. You can't just come in one gate, come in, genuflect, touch the bowl of water, leave, and count it as a good day. No one can say you didn't go to church that day, right? No, the truth is you you have to go through the whole of it and enter out the other side to participate in worship. And then you have the prince's role here. He is essentially the worship leader for the nation and for the world, really. Um, And that's a little principle that I like to remind people, too. Technically, the worship leader in every church is the pastor. Now, musically, you have someone who leads the musical portion of worship on the stage. But spiritually speaking, the pastor is the worship leader of the congregation. Whether that worship is in music, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in prayer, they're leading the worship. And worship is all of those things. It's not just one of those things. He is the authority over worship in the church. So a pastor should always take an active and and leading role to some degree. That doesn't mean you have to get up on the stage. And for your sake, God forbid, I should get up on the stage during worship. Uh, musical worship. But that doesn't mean you don't have a leadership role. And David exemplifies that here as the worship leader for not only Israel, but the whole world. And then he covers free will offerings there. He says David can bring those voluntarily on behalf of the nation. And when he does, the East Gate's going to be open like it is on a Sabbath day, and the priests will make sacrifices and so on. Uh, In the Mosaic system, you have this lamb that opened every day, a daily sacrifice every morning, just as you see here. But in the Mosaic system, there was also an evening sacrifice every night. But in this system, only the morning one. There's no evening one. That's another difference that defies explanation, if perhaps no other reason, just to show that this is not the same system. Next, we look at the gifts, the gifts that the prince can make to others. Verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord God, If the prince gives a gift out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty. Then it shall return to the prince. His inheritance shall be only his sons. It shall belong to them. The prince shall not take from the people's inheritance, thrusting them out of their possession. He shall give his sons inheritance from his own possession, so that his people will not be scattered anyone from his possession. Let's just describe what he's saying here first, then we'll deal with some of the implications. This is how David the prince is supposed to share his wealth with his, quote, sons. 
Now, the passage is intriguing in a couple of ways. First, there's the simple issue of inheritance. Right? Inheritance implies death. Uh, we know from the New Testament teaching that every believer receives an inheritance in the kingdom, a portion of Christ's inheritance, that is a portion of the world that Christ receives, that is his, he shares with the sons of light. Everyone in here receives some part of the world as their physical inheritance. And in Israel's case, they all get a portion of the land of Israel as assigned by tribe. Okay, um, So when Ezekiel talks here about the prince sharing his inheritance, what it means is David transferring wealth from what he received personally to someone else, for whatever reason. It's not him dying, it's him simply assigning it to someone else. Why is it called an inheritance? Because it's Christ's inheritance given to him. But then in his hands, it's something he can do what he will with it. But God puts some limits on it. The Lord says that uh, the allotment of inheritance that has gone to David in this case cannot change hands across tribal or family boundaries. David can't give his wealth to another Jewish tribe. Uh, He can't give it to uh, someone outside of Israel, presumably. He can only give it to his sons. That's a way of maintaining family control over the inheritance. Thirdly, any wealth that's assigned to a servant must go back to David in the Jubilee year, in the year of liberty. That detail tells us that there will be those in the kingdom who serve others for a period of time waiting for their freedom. An indentured servitude of some kind, once again. In ancient Israel, if you became indentured to someone because of a debt, you'd work your debt off by becoming their slave for a period of time. A bond slave is what the term is in the New Testament. So you're paying off a debt. When the debt was repaid, your service ended. Or if the year of Jubilee rolled around, all debts were forgiven and you were released. There seems to be the same in the kingdom. Liberty, that reference to liberty is to the year of Jubilee. Remember, we said earlier there's an economy. We said earlier wealth can change hands. Wealth can be stored. Wealth can be gained. Wealth can be lost. And what it appears to be true also is that you might be sinless and still be bad with money. (laughs) And some some of you are saying, oh, no. And that's an interesting concept. Sinfulness, or let's say it differently, competence and sinfulness are independent. Being sinful, or let's say being without sin doesn't make you 100% competent. It doesn't make you 100% intelligent. It doesn't make you a genius because you don't have sin. It's an interesting thing for us to play with this concept in our minds because we just don't have anything to relate to. We don't have experience in that realm of sinlessness. So what we tend to do, I think, is assume a lot that isn't necessarily true. We, We tend to assume that being sinless will make us perfect in every area of life. But that would deny New Testament theology because the New Testament says that Christ is watching as we serve him, and those who are faithful in a very little thing will be understood and expected to be faithful with much in the kingdom. That tells us that something about your maturity in character and in spiritual knowledge now has an impact on where you will be in the kingdom in those areas. And the fact that God removes sin from you in the meantime doesn't make up for all those other things in and of itself which is the reason Scripture calls us to pursue spiritual maturity now. You know, if you think about it for a minute, if sinlessness immediately erased all spiritual immaturity, then there'd be no reason for the Bible to tell us to pursue spiritual maturity while we await our glorification, because at the moment of glorification, it would just fix the problem anyway. But that's not the way the Bible portrays it. It calls on us to make the most of these days so that we'll be best prepared to serve Him in the next 
opportunity. And uh, these little details about servitude and the like seem to suggest, if not outright de- declare, that there will be those who find themselves in positions of need or, or, or dependence on others and have to go into a state of service to somebody else. And it won't be that they showed up with nothing necessarily, but it may be that they took what they had and lost it in some respect, even being sinless. Or in the case perhaps of others who are natural, this might happen. Their sin actually leads them into these things, right? I find that whether I'm assuming some things incorrectly or not, be that as it may, you guys can make your own choices in that regard. But what I do think is accurate is the, the fabric of life has a great deal more complexity and realistic feeling to it than we may have imagined it. And if it's because you, you, you kind of whitewashed life thinking everyone's sinless, well, therefore life will be in this kind of uh, you know, hospital-like, sanitized state. You're not, you're not understanding what it means to be sinless. You, you know, if Jesus could be sinless around all his brothers and that didn't impress upon them the fact that he was Messiah, it means you can look just like everybody else. You just don't have to sin. All right? That leads us to the conversation again of natural versus glorified bodies. Because you see the mention here of Prince David... Now, if you heard me say this before, uh, there are scripture verses that seem to suggest all Israel is glorified, no death, no children, no marriage, etc. And then there are those passages, like we saw last week, that seem to indicate Israel can have death and sin and children. And so it raises the question, well, if death and sin are characteristics of what Israel knows, then they must be natural. They can't be all glorified. At least some of them must be natural, right? Then you have these other passages that don't seem to allow any room for any of Israel to be anything other than glorified. And so you get into that conundrum that I've dealt with, right? Here you find another of those passages that would seem to suggest that Israel is natural because it says David has sons, which would imply he's marrying, which means he's having children, right? Ah, but wait a minute. In this case, we know David is glorified. We know he is glorified because he's already died. His natural body is already gone. The only way he comes back is the way you and I come back, which is in a glorified state. So here's the counter-argument to some of what we've studied in weeks past. Even though there might be passages that seem to talk in terms of things like death or marriage or sons, there could be another explanation for it in which the language doesn't necessarily mean exactly what we think it means, and it allows for glorification where otherwise we might assume not. How do we reconcile this one, for example? We know in Luke 20, Jesus says that we will be like the angels not being married or given into marriage, right? And that's David's state, and yet he has sons. Well, it could be that those sons are simply his resurrected descendants, the sons he had before. And in this case, in the Jewish mindset, a son would be any descendant, not his literal offspring, but his grandsons, his great-grandsons. So the sons in this case could be the other kings, the other Davidic kings that are in the kingdom, good kings like Asa or Jehoshaphat, who are resurrected too because they were believing. They are his sons, literally, but they're all there resurrected in a glorified state. And so God may have awarded David an inheritance and David in his love for some of these men, maybe some he never even met, will now say, would you like some of my inheritance? And that's perhaps what this means. I'm just using that as an example to show you that that little conundrum I've raised in the past here, I've done that intentionally to show you that there, there is something here to work on, but don't run immediately to one assumption or the other. There are ways to work it from both angles. All right, so anyway, David can share some of his uh, immense wealth uh, with those uh, that are under him. Notice the last statement, though. The leaders cannot steal the people's possessions. <laughs> Uh, each tribe in Israel will have some portion as their inheritance. It's assigned to them, and no leader is going to start trying to take from the others to increase his bank balance. 
All right, now we move on to the Lord telling Ezekiel how the priests are going to work with the sacrificial meat in the temple inner court. This is a very small little detail. We'll just move in through it quickly. Verse 19, he says, Then he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, into the holy chamber for the priests, which faced north. And behold, there was a place at the extreme rear toward the west. He said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order that they may not bring them out into the outer court to transmit holiness to the people. All right, back to the pictures. Here's what we're looking at. Inside one of those side buildings that flanks the temple, inside the inner court, remember, so if you were standing where you're standing right now, if you were to look at this, the temple's to your back, and you're facing east. So the door, if you turned, if you were looking in this direction, you turned to your right, you'd be looking at the entrance of the temple. Right? So this is, uh, that would tell you this is the south end. So this is that south end building. There's an identical one on the other side, on the north side. And this is where the priests live, or, or at least where they work. They take off their clothes, they get dressed, they come in, and they work from that place. And in those buildings, we just got told that the priests will boil the offerings, bake the grains offered to the Lord, and where that takes place, he says, is right here in the corners of the inner court. Those are like the barbecues, where they actually put the, the pots to boil the meat, according to what we just read. And they sit in those little corners in the back of the inner court. All right. Notice, they work in this little inner sanctum, so that nothing they're doing can be transmitted to the people outside. Back to what we said earlier, that the glory of the Lord and the things associated with His glory will not go outside to be seen by other people. Verse 21, he says, Then he brought me out, meaning out of this inner area, into the uh, outer court and led me across to the four corners of the court. And behold, in every corner of the court there was a small court. In the four corners of the court there were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. These four in the corners were the same size. There was a row of masonry around the four of them, and boiling places were made under the rows round about. Then he said to me, These are the boiling places where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifices of the people. What we've been looking at here is the one that's inside where the priests are. Now what we find is, if you go to the outer court, which is what he just did, in the corners of the outer court, on all four sides, you find a similar station. But now this is for the general public that come in to do their sacrifices. And they're about 66 feet by 50 feet, according to the measurement. And there's a masonry wall. That's where the fireplaces are for cooking. And what you're going to find as you walk in there is you're going to find a whole bunch of priests that do work in there like cooks, boiling all the meat from the sacrifices as it's supposed to be done uh, as part of what people brought to the Lord on a regular basis. Now, since these sacrifices are not offered by the priests, they're offered by the worshipers, they don't possess the glory of the Lord. They haven't been exposed to the, the glory of the Lord. And so the worshipers are able to, to participate out here. By the way, that part of the worship process was they would eat part of the meat. That's part of how it's done. So all of this took place out in the court. So you can imagine a worship scene that's a bit half fellowship, half food, half uh, song, half prayer. Half, you know, it's kind of like church, right? Without the fire. That's it. That's the sacrificial system in Ezekiel. That's it. Compared to what's in the law of Moses, it's relatively short. Uh, let's look at the, the two compared in summary. Both systems have all the things on the left. So they both have a temple, obviously. They both have altars. They both have blood. They both have uh, all those various kinds of 
sacrifices and offerings, you have priests, and so on. Two of the festivals, or feasts rather, and as I mentioned, you do have a year of Jubilee mentioned. But what the millennial system does not have is this. So those things are all missing. And I think we aren't going to do it in our study, but it might be an interesting thing at some point to to go through and understand why are those things not needed in the millennial kingdom. And in most cases, the answer is because Jesus is there. And so the pictures of Jesus are not needed when he is actually there. That's one fast answer for most of them. He's the high priest. He is the picture that the ark pictures him. The veil is not there anymore because it's been rent. You know, when he died, it was pulled down. All of these things, right? All right. Zechariah gives us a concise overview of how worship at the temple will go from the perspective of a Gentile nation. It's very short. Let me just read this to you. This is you and me, at least in some elements of it. Zechariah fourteen sixteen. it says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And you notice our worship is on these moments of the feast. They're not every day. They're not once a week. It's just this annual cycle. All right? So it only mentions in Zechariah the nations, the Gentile nations, going up for the Feast of Booths. That was the second one of the two. It's also the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? Then it says, And it will be whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up to enter then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague on which the Lord smites the nations who does not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Now here's what I think that text is telling us. It sounds as if the Gentiles only celebrate the second of these two feasts. And that then Jews would celebrate both. That's, that's only an assumption, but it, it seems to be the case that there's only one ever mentioned in association with Gentiles. It's the second of the two. In fact, he says, if any Gentile nation does not go up for that second one, they're in trouble. He will make his, his wrath known. Obviously, that would imply natural, unglorified, sinning believers, or otherwise, unbelievers, who are not obeying. All right, finally, Zechariah confirms that we will all join together in that outer area, cooking our sacrifices in these holy pots, right? He's describing that, that potluck uh, that will take place in the sacrifice. Uh, then he adds, no Canaanite will be in the house of the Lord. Presumably, that's just a general reference to a pagan, no unbeliever, as we've said already. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, Father, thank you for the the pictures of Christ in so many areas of Scripture, not just so how it it would teach us about him, Father, but also in seeing the intricacies that you have woven together in your word. It's a reminder, Father, that we know this is from you. Mere human beings could not have authored something so intricate across centuries and with different people as as it was written, Father. That in itself is a testimony to you and to your uh, wisdom and power. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in your word because of what you've hidden in it for our sake. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.